Hello everyone and welcome back to the Seek Outside podcast. My name is Dennis and today Kevin and I are joined by Ed Arnett. Ed is the Chief Scientist for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership or TRCP. He is also the host of This American Land, a public TV series now in its ninth season. In this episode, we talk about the sage grouse, lecking grounds, wind turbines, and bats. So please enjoy our conversation with Ed Arnett. Um, so today on the podcast, we have Ed Arnett uh, of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Um, Ed, how's it going? And uh, give me a give me a rundown of the, kind of what you do for TRCP. That's going great, guys, and thanks for having me on. Um, so I'm the chief scientist for the TRCP. Um, when I first started in 2012, I was our energy director. So I worked a lot on um, oil and gas and renewable development and those kinds of things as it affects public lands and then morphed into our, our chief scientist. And really what I do is provide technical input um, from the science side of things into our policy positions and the conservation work that we do, um, whether it's, you know, public lands, um, work on sage grouse, uh, big game corridor work, all of those kinds of things, work a little bit on our farm bill program and such. So, so that's kind of what I do on my given day. I read a lot of documents and write a lot of opinions and <laughs> put talking points together, those kinds of things, and respond to, you know, public comment periods on, on uh, land use plans and, you know, state policy, those kinds of things. Got it. And then, uh, Kevin, you're, you're also around today. Actually, Kevin and I are uh, in the same building, but separated by a floor. So he's downstairs. I'm upstairs. Uh, so we're recording the podcast today. Um, how's it going, Kevin? All right. How are you guys doing? How are you doing, Ed? Um, chatted with you a few days ago. Um, you picked up a backpack and stuff. So yeah. how did you get into being a wildlife biologist? That is um, something that I had wanted to do most of my entire life. I was a fortunate kid. Uh, I never deviated from what I thought I wanted to do. No, no deviation from being a fireman or, or, or a policeman or any or doctor, any of that stuff. I knew I wanted to work with wildlife from a very young age. Um, Kevin, you might be old enough to remember Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Um, yes, I do. Marlon Perkins and Jim Fowler and Stan Brock, those characters were kind of heroes of mine as a young man. I watched that show diligently all the time. And in fact, Marlon Perkins, and for those of you that don't know who these people are, think of Jack Hanna and, you know, the late Steve Irwin and some of those contemporary people that are now teaching you things about wildlife on Saturday and Sunday morning kind of shows. Um, that's, that was in our day. And I watched that show diligently. Marlon Perkins was actually the, um, zoo director, um, at the St. Louis zoo. I grew up just North of St. Louis. And, um, I actually met him one time. I met Jim Fowler later in life, but that was kind of that early influence. And my grandpa always took me hunting and fishing. So I always had that outdoor, um, uh, connection and a deep connection with wildlife. And I really didn't know what it meant or, you know, how that would manifest when I was a kid, who knows that when you're eight years old, you know, and going through high school, but I figured it out in high school and I went to college actually out in Glenwood Springs, Kevin. Oh, <laughs> really? Colorado Mountain College. Yeah. Right out of high school. 
<laughs> I, um, it's a little bit of a long story. I won't get into all of it, but my grandparents kind of drugged me along uh, on their retirement tour of the West. When my grandfather retired, I got to go along and, and that just solidified it for me. I, I knew I had to move West and follow old Horace Greeley's advice and move West as a young man. And I did right out of high school. I went started at Colorado mountain college and then went to Bozeman, got a, a bachelor's degree there and on to Wyoming for a master's degree and took a break for a while and got my doctorate in Oregon and been working in the profession a long time and done a lot of different things, worked for the timber industry, worked for uh, federal agencies and, and nonprofits as well. So done well, a little I was listening. I was listening to a meat eater podcast and you used to do a lot of bat stuff in the Pacific Northwest. Is that correct? Correct. And, and, and quite a bit across the country on wind. Um, I started that when I was working with Warehouser Timber Company, um, you know, timber management uh, has an effect on a lot of different critters, not just spotted owls and salmon and those kinds of things. Uh, you know, there's lots of critters that live in the managed forest and nobody was looking at bats at the time. And I started working, you know, on, um, on managed forests and ended up doing my doctorate work on, um, on, on bats for out of Oregon State University and kind of looking at managed versus unmanaged forest conditions and their effects on populations and habitat use. And that led me to a job with a nonprofit called Bat Conservation International based in Austin. And I moved to Austin in uh, 2004 and started up a wind energy research program because bats were being killed by wind turbines. And so we mm -hmm. did a lot of the pioneering work on uh, on that that issue. So yeah, I've, I've studied bats probably it was over twenty years. Yeah, the, the, there's a pretty famous area for bats in Austin. I lived in Austin for a few years. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, lived there for four year four years I think. Hot, hot, but um, not good. Uh, good uh, night scene, nightlife what, scene. Where were you there? Just out of curiosity. Um, 2001 to 2005 boy we barely overlap man i moved there in may of 2004 isn't that funny we probably crossed each other in the saxon pub or something or yeah yeah exactly your bridge <laughs> exactly so you've been on um i know you've been on steve's podcast a lot i heard you said it was the fourth time the the one i listened to did you ever get a fifth time or like some sort of jacket some sort of I, I, haven't, I haven't got my, uh, my five timers club jacket yet. So <laughs> no. Steve and I are going to, I was kind of a Saturday night live joke. Um, but, uh, and it was funny how that manifested because Steve was at the house and he started looking around all my pictures. I got a bunch of bat pictures here and that's how that fired up on the bat stuff. Um, just kind of impromptu. That's how these things work. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, we're 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 supposed to talk down the road on sage grouse. I think we're just waiting for a few more things to to develop. Um, one of the first times we talked about grouse, he and Ronnie Bame were out hunting sage grouse in uh, Wyoming, and I was with them, uh, not on the show, but being filmed. But I was there uh, behind the scenes, and uh, and then we did a podcast around the campfire, and we talked about. A lot of things sage grouse at that time um the not warranted decision for sage grouse had just been uh it was just about to be uh finalized and i was pretty optimistic and a lot of things have changed since then so we uh we got a lot to talk about that's for sure next time we we get on the cast and discuss stuff 
Well, why don't we get into the sage grouse a little bit um, from right there? So you mentioned that a lot of stuff has changed. Um, what what has changed? Um, what is, is and is it first? Well, if it's okay, I'll give you a real fast history, if that's okay, kind of a time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of people think this is just something that popped out of of nowhere and um the environmental groups were suing and you know to get a settlement and and get the bird listed and those kinds of things this all started i mean i actually found an article written by uh william temple hornady back in the early um 1900s i think it was 19 it was in the teens i think and he was calling uh, like most species back in the you know at the turn of the century uh, they were their population levels were down, um, estimated to be in the millions of sage grouse, and he was he was calling on civilization to and western the westerners in particular to save the sage grouse. Um, in the 1950s, the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, which is the association of all western states or 17 western states that are part of that. Um, at least at that time, 11 states, you know, were part of the sage grouse uh, range. And um, they started talking about doing more research, more coordinated efforts, those kinds of things. So they really, and they put together a technical um, committee and fast forward to 1994, that same group of biologists were really considering whether the grouse needed to be listed. They had lost over half their range. Their populations had been in steep decline uh, since they really started doing the, the coordinated uh, lek monitoring. Leks are the dancing grounds where the, the males collect and, and gather and, and uh, display for females and fight each other and all that good stuff. The singles bar for, uh, for sage grouse. <laughs> And um, the males come in readily, so they can be counted with some degree of regularity. The females kind of come and go, but it's an index to the numbers. And those, anyway, those those counts had been in decline. So all these concerns got the biologists pretty fired up about uh, whether or not the species warranted listing under the Endangered Species Act. And they looked through the five criteria and if you ask me what they were, I probably couldn't remember all of them, but it has to do with threats and population numbers and, you know, uh, conditions of the habitat, variety of other things, but th there's five conditions that have to be met. And at that time, uh, they determined that the sage grouse was not, uh, did not meet those criteria at that particular time in 1995. Well, fast forward uh, some more and the habitat continues to be, you know, um, degraded and lost populations kept declining and there were new petitions that were put forward. And in 2005, the species was determined to be not warranted for listing under the Endangered Species Act. And I, I happened to know the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service at that time, and he believed his regional folks that told him that at that particular juncture in time, they probably didn't warrant uh, listing. But there were some shenanigans going on with, you know, manipulation at high levels of politicos and the science and where have we seen that before, right? Mm -hmm. um, that tends to happen. And um, so bottom line, there was a, 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 a lawsuits filed and the judge determined at that time that the um, service needed to revisit 
the data and revisit their decision in 2005 based on some things that were going on in the department as well as uh, just new information coming in. Fast forward to 2010, the bird was determined to be uh, warranted for listing under the Endangered Species Act, but precluded. Now, what that means is that it warranted protections under the ESA because between 2005 and 2010, actually that was a high development period. And we all have heard of, uh, many of us have heard of the, uh, you know, what was going on in the anticline in the Pinedale region, um, the Jonah Field in Wyoming, a lot of development in that era. So the habitat was still being degraded. And in 2010, that warranted but precluded um, decision came forward. And um, the, uh, the sorry, what that means is that uh, there are more, there were other species on the, the list uh, for the endangered species protections that kind of superseded the sage grouse. So it was warranted, but precluded. And then more lawsuits came about. And, and in 2010, um, later in 2010, a judge said, no, you Fish and Wildlife Service, you will make a decision within five years. So the data supported the fact that the birds were in trouble and imperiled. Um, the courts decided that things would, would be done within five years. And that's what kind of sped up the, the urgency. And in 2015, that's when that decision had to be made. Um, I'll take a break there. If you had any questions on that, that's kind of the quick timeline. And then uh, we can get into what happened in 2015, between 2010 and 2015. So, so, um, so the science says that they need help. But precluded just means that there's other species that need more help? Yeah, there were just other species that had been on the list. Uh, and the Fish and Wildlife Services doesn't have enough resources and personnel and such to, to deal with every single one the minute it comes across and, and you know, is determined to be warranted. So it was just on the list that, to get to. And um, th there were lawsuits that uh, pushed that forward. And yeah. in my opinion, thankfully so. I, I I think that was a good thing that they needed to light a fire under some of the players, if you will, because you know, again, the the with oil and gas development, with um, fire threats, development, just uh, urban development, just there's all kinds of things that threaten sage grouse. You know, in that period, there were disease outbreaks of um, you know uh, associated with um, with uh, mosquitoes and and uh, their use of of uh, water ponds around oil and gas development and such, uh, so there were there was a combination of energy development and disease effect, lots of things affecting sage grouse at that time. So it's a good thing that they that the judge put that forward, in my opinion, because what happened in two thousand eight. Wyoming kind of led the way before the bird was even determined, warranted, but precluded uh, in 2010. Wyoming put together a strategy, a state level strategy through then Governor Dave Friedenthal, which carried forward into Governor Matt Mead. And now uh, Governor Gordon has continued these efforts in Wyoming. But in 2010, a couple other things happened, not just the the warranted but precluded discuss, or, uh, listing decision, but also the Natural Resource Conservation Service initiated their sage grouse initiative. So they started pumping lots of money through farm bill programs and other sources into private lands conservation. One of the big threats 
across the range has been conifer invasion, where we've been losing that you know sagebrush habitat to to uh, pinyon juniper forests that are native in the region, but they they normally would be knocked back with a normal fire fire regime and and such. Uh, so that had taken a lot of habitat as well. Uh, fences take out sage grouse, so there's a lot of fence marking, water developments, and wetland management. Uh, the sage uh, grouse hens and their chicks like um, moist meadows uh, during the brood rearing stages of of uh, their life cycle. So there was a lot of management around that. So a lot of things going on through that sage grouse initiative at a very critical time, but the land management agencies hadn't really um, set forward their amendment process to to assess conservation measures to protect the sage grouse and improve their habitat conditions. And that all kicked off with that lawsuit, really. Uh, so an amendment process started. And by the 2015 decision, which happened in uh, mid, mid to late September of 2015, they had amended 98 resource management plans across the 11 state range, uh, as well as uh, eight national forest plans. Um, those amendments took the form of stronger conservation measures for the bird, um, uh, lots of development restrictions and those kinds of things. Uh, and, and all of that, the states all ended up putting plans together. Again, Wyoming led the way, but Every state had a, a conservation plan that complemented the federal plans. And then all this private land work that was happening through the NRCS and other, other venues as well. All of that led to uh, then Secretary Sally Jewell and then Director Dan Ash determining that the species was not warranted in, uh, I believe it was September 22nd. I was at the ceremony when they announced it. I believe it was September 22nd in 2015. And I agreed with that decision. I felt like if all of those plans developed and manifested on the landscape in good conservation and habitat restoration and those kinds of things, uh, that we were, that the bird was not warranted for protections. However, we had a shift in administrations. Uh, the ink was barely dry on the plans. And as you can imagine, not everybody, I remember Sally Jewell saying this, it's like, well, everybody's mad at me on the, or people are mad at me on the left and, and, and on the far right. So I must've got somewhere in the middle and she was right. Not everybody got what they wanted, which means you probably came up with a pretty good compromise on those plans. And so, uh, fast forward to the, you know, the Trump administration when they came in and Ryan Zinke uh, opened up the plans uh, for review. Um, I believe a lot of that came from uh, the state of Utah and a couple other places that just weren't satisfied. Uh, the oil and gas industry was pushing the administration very hard uh, to loosen things up a little bit on those plans. And bottom line, there were amendments in that finalized in 2019 that had fewer protections for the bird. But there were some necessary changes. The states had some concerns and they wanted to better align those plans with their state plans, which was fine. Um, and some protections were definitely taken. Uh, the biggest thing that happened though, is they just allowed a lot more leasing at a faster rate in sage grouse habitat. The, the original plans never did uh, completely eliminate all leasing and all habitat, but it staged it out 
through space and time uh, with a prioritization scheme that was basically nixed in the 2019 plans. So there are changes made and and um, we still don't know how, you know, how they're affecting grouse because a lot of this just hasn't developed on the ground. One of the things my colleagues and I have said that for those of us that have been around a while playing this game for, you know, decades, this was the greatest conservation planning effort ever that we've seen in contemporary wildlife history since the turn of the century. And I say planning because we're still waiting for a lot of this to manifest on the ground. And the last thing I'll say on what's changed is you can imagine once the 2019 plans were finalized, the lawsuits began to fly and um, it went back to the original judge in Idaho, Judge Windmill, who said that in those 2019 plan amendments, the BLM did not, um, he didn't believe that they did um, a good enough job comporting with new information, the science and those kinds of things. So he basically put forward an injunction that enjoined the two plans, meaning that the 2015 plans as of today still are now back to the law of the land. Um, so there's still a lot of confusion, uh, a lot of a lack of implementation, I think, and yet we're still seeing leasing in grouse habitat at a, you know, at a pretty high rate still, even today. So that's kind of what's planned or uh, what's changed to you know, give, give you the timeline in a long-winded way. <laughs> but now you know the the timeline of sage grouse and and kind of where we're at as of now. We're waiting for the public comment period, which ends in June. Um, on the uh, judge's decision, and we'll see what uh, what that judge believes, whether he thinks the BLM, in fact, did do a good enough job in their response to his concerns, or if they have to continue uh, implementing the 2015 plan to go back to go back and re, uh, re reanalyze things, which I think they do. I don't think the BLM did a good enough job analyzing new information. Well, they didn't do, they didn't really analyze any new information between tw about 2013 and 2019. And a lot has changed. We've lost over 9 million acres at, alone to fire wildfires. That's really changed the habitat conditions, particularly in the Great Basin, lots of leasing, lots of development. So, uh, and the mitigation, you know, whether we're actually mitigating impacts and restoring habitat is still in question. So lots of unknowns, and and I, I think we've been losing ground as opposed to gaining it recently on Saint so, The I heard that the uh, BLM, Dennis and I are in junk, Grand Junction right now. Heard the BLM moved here, their head. So why don't we just go over there and chat with them and tell them our concerns, or is it, or is it a much more difficult than that? Well, the public comment period is definitely still open, so you can certainly do it that way. And you can, as a citizen, you have every right to, to, to go into the BLM and ask them how your public lands are being managed. So we can share some points with you on that. So um, ultimately, this is going to come down to Judge Windmill. This is kind of one of the unfortunate realities of contemporary wildlife management. It's usually being decided in the courts. Uh, we as biologists don't like that. Um but it's just kind of one of the natures of, of the beast these days. Um, and a lot of things get settled in court. So ultimately, they have to answer to the judge. But I think, you know, this what we've put together for this, this set of comments is uh, 
a warning, if you will, that uh, we don't believe that they've uh, done enough analysis of the new information to really assess the situation. We're four years into a decline right now. Um, if we talk about the population trends a little bit, since 1965, they've been in decline. And although, and you know this, Kevin, you're a big game bird hunter. You know, when you're in an up year, good precipitation, good habitat conditions, you're going to find birds. So you get these upticks and, and downslides that are pretty dramatic sometimes for game birds. Sometimes, you know, 40, 50% or more um, fluctuation from one year to the next. And I'll, I remember back in 2013, we were at the one the second lowest point on the, on the trend counts for males attending LEX across the range. Then we saw right as we were getting to that 2015 decision, we got good range. Remember that year, 2014, 15, 16, we had pretty darn good hunting. Um, not just for sage grouse and other critters, but or other birds as well, because we had good moisture and good habitat conditions. Well, a lot of people were touting that. See, everything's working fine. We've got a 63% increase since 2013. And my reminder to everybody was that was the second lowest point in history. <laughs> so or when you look at the long-term trend, it's a loss of about 2% a year. And that remains today. And this, the last four years, the LEC counts have been down across the West. So we're not so what about, So it sounds like energy development, particularly in the more sage kind of lands, is, is a big concern with them, right? Especially when it happens at a very accelerated pace. Um, is, yep. What do you say to the people, because I've seen this play out on forums, right? Um, or public public things where someone's like, well, you know, all these oil wells are bad for say mule deer. Right. And then someone else turns around and says, well, I've never seen as many big bucks as I ever have until I put my oil well in. How, how, how does that work? Well, with sage grouse, um, in particular, they're a landscape, what we consider a landscape species. They need big landscapes and undisturbed tracks of it. So, what you saw in the original 2015 plans, and they stay in the, they're still in the 2019 plans to a large extent, are these what's called no surface occupancy buffers around those leks. Um, so the lek is a center point, and then if you go out around four miles um, and draw kind of a circle, there's not supposed to be any any. Um, uh, there's supposed to be disturbance caps within that area or no surface dis disturbance at all. Uh, the idea there is to limit the, the distribution of wells and that impact on, on the species. Uh, and what, what the science shows is that in a lot of, a lot of areas, the, the majority of the hens tend to nest within about four miles or so of those lex sites. But, you know, I think, my view from the 2015 plans was it was pretty well balanced. If you really wanted to comport 100% with the science um, to, to really minimize or eliminate the disturbance altogether, uh, there wouldn't have been any development in, you know, within four or five miles at all. And, you know, there was an allowance, at least in some plans, to, to allow some level of disturbance. And with the new technology, you know, they can reach in and 
get the resources in in most of the situations or a lot of them anyway. Um, so it wasn't quite as draconian as was being uh, uh, stated. We also heard some of those similar things to the big buck story. Uh, I actually watched a mining industry representative at a conference I was at showing a video of a sage grouse uh, doing its dance while a bulldozer is running right behind it. So that's not necessarily evidence that there isn't going to be some population level effect. Um, because the one thing people have to understand about sage grouse and all birds that uh, most birds in particular, males that set up territories with songbirds that do that, or, or in this case, dancing grouse, they have very high fidelity to those sites. They will go back year after year, and sometimes you have a lag effect. So you may put your mine in and still have birds that are lacking there, but ultimately that disturbance is going to have the the lag effect, and you'll you'll they'll just it'll just peter out over time, and now you've lost a lack site. And in addition to the habitat, um, the other thing is what we call an indirect effect. Um, you have that lag effect as well, but you also have an indirect effect. So if there's enough disturbance at a site, habitat that's around those sites that is otherwise suitable, just looks like you should have grouse there, doesn't because they're avoiding the the disturbance at some distance. And that's why you saw those those larger landscapes being protected uh, in the conservation plans to reduce that level of disturbance. Um, you know, yeah, just because he's, uh, just cause he's dancing there doesn't mean there's any ladies to come hang That's out exactly with him. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly right. Yep. He's dancing. There's a lot of data to support this too. on the, and both migratory songbirds and, and other species that they will come back and they'll keep going back and back, but eventually you see that lag effect play out. Yeah. Yeah, he could be dancing because he's like, I haven't seen a lady in so long, man. I'm going to try anything to get him to come around. Exactly. And you've got, you know, and, and some of the dominant males figure it out and go establish a lek somewhere else. Or, you know, and that's the other thing we hear all the time. Well, they'll just go somewhere else. Well, there may not be anywhere to go. Um, so, you know, a mule deer can only move its migration route so far away to avoid uh, the disturbance. Uh, interesting to the, you know, we've I've heard that too. And I've actually shot antelope pretty damn close to oil and gas rigs. We always kind of joke. It's like, just put on your hard hat and play the gas man and walk up to the <laughs> get your antelope. Um, they don't seem to pay attention to heart, people with hard hats on. But the um, the reality there sometimes is is there may not be other habitat to go to, or there may be conditions with, you know, winter conditions that, you know, uh, the, the animals uh, get some favorable effect from a windbreak and those kinds of, there's all kinds of factors. Ecology is not easy. And, uh, and really the biologist is taking a very big overall look at the whole population. That's exactly. And, and not the population next to Bob's oil well. Yep. Um, you know, maybe Bob's oil well is doing great because of other reasons. So. That's exactly right. And a lot of that's the old, uh, metaphor, the old, not a metaphor adage of, uh, uh, real estate adage, location, location, location. And, you know, uh, one thing that I've always been concerned about is what happens in these ultra critical hard winters. Um, do we know enough about where we're putting a development, whether it's a renewable project and solar or, 
for wind or an oil and gas development? Do we really know enough about that herd to know that we're not dramatically altering the critical times when there's, you know, a harsh winter uh, that that they may have absolutely nowhere else to go. Now, um, what about all the still developing? What about all the litigation? Um, that has to be frustrating as a biologist, right? Um, but is is it just going to be the fact of life in that you're really pleasing nobody um, and it's always going to get decided in the courts? Or is there something, is there some sort of thing at the end of the tunnel that maybe someday there won't be um, as much? Or is it that people are so, people or groups are so far one to one extreme or the other extreme that it's just always going to happen? That's a great question. And it does frustrate us biologists <laughs> to no end. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it can be challenging to parse out the frivolous lawsuits for the sake of, you know, having lawsuits and not getting your way versus actual needed litigation. Um, because somebody did, you know, broke the law or almost broke the law or, or there's an impending crisis. Uh, sometimes that can be hard to parse out. Um, but I think one of the things I've experienced over my career, particularly with some of the environmental groups and the, the very litigious ones, is uh, it's very difficult for them to be satisfied with balance and giving anything up. And, you know, it, it, that sometimes is tough as a biologist, too. Um, seeking that middle ground and giving something up because that means, you know, you may have to give up a piece of habitat to save some more in another place. But, um, you know, if we're going to have wildlife in this country, it's at the will of the people. And um, there are always going to be industry and, and other, other conflicts with urbanization and those kinds of things. And we've got to, we've got to continue to strive for that balance because the day the people don't want wildlife is the day they're not going to be around. Um, and you know, the, the litigation oftentimes is necessary, but oftentimes it's not helpful at all. Um, it, it can be an environmental group suing because an environmental impact statement didn't dot their I's and cross their T's. So they made a procedural error but the plan's appropriate, you know, from a scientific perspective, for example. Uh, they just didn't get everything they wanted. So and I, I'm, I'm generalizing here and, you know, picking out some extreme examples. But I, I, I don't see litigation going away. And there, there needs to probably be some level of litigation reform. Uh, it's, kind of a, uh, it's kind of a free-for-all to some extent on the litigious front. And I think people need to be held accountable and responsible for that. And I've got an article that I wrote a few years ago about, um, with another sage grouse, uh, specialist that, or a sage grouse specialist, uh, that worked with me on this. And, and, um, it's kind of whose science was the theme of it. And, uh, you know, industry can hire anybody they want to do their science and then try to pit it against academics and other people that uh, I would say are far more respected scientists. That, I mean, they're right all the time, but they need to be called out when they're wrong. And science is a never ending tug of war back and forth among the players, but there's also hired gun science and uh, that doesn't help us either. That, so, that is true. They're like, like the cigarette industries, hired yep. guns and, and those folks. So true story I had last year, this lady 
about the same age as you and I, Ed, this lady, slept in her pickup truck in my driveway all summer until probably uh, about the end of November when she went down to Arizona to help um, her parents. Um, she was an ex-wildlife biologist um, hmm. from Washington State. And she had become very frustrated. I don't really know why. I didn't, I didn't poke into it a whole lot, but she had become frustrated with it. And she went and she hiked the whole PCT one year yeah. and then did a couple other things. And she was just kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, just kind of floating about right now, right? Working some yeah. odd jobs and stuff, but frustrated that she had basically given up her career and passion because she thought it had become too politicized. I, I share those concerns. Um, I'm actually teaching a policy class right now through Colorado State University. And that's a bit of reality that I'm sharing with the students. Um, anyone that doesn't think uh, politics influences wildlife conservation and management and science and the whole, the whole gamut of the things that we deal with is, is, is not living in the real world. Um, Politicians decide on our budgets. They decide on, they obviously, I mean, look at the whole COVID thing that's going on now, how that's being dealt with and the scientists and their their uh, participation and such. So, yeah, it, it, it can be very frustrating, but what's the alternative? I mean, you know, you got to, you have to stick around and, and, um, and work it out on the political side, but it's very frustrating. It's frustrating with the litigation too. I was going to mention that, you know, uh, if you go, you can go too far um, on the litigation um, reform, if you will. Um, I do believe there are a lot of lawsuits that are pretty frivolous and it's a, a bit of a model of some NGOs. It seems like the sue and settle approach. Um, it's good for fundraising and all that stuff. Nothing, nothing raises funds better than a good, a good crisis. Um, so, uh, you know, Rob Bishop had put forward a number of bills uh, over the last several years, starting in, you know, 2013 or so, uh, that were, you know, calling for different uh, sage-grouse approach, approaches to sage-grouse management. And part of his legislation that was trying to be tagged on to the National Defense Authorization Act as a writer, one of the provisions in that was no judicial review. Like once these decisions were put forward and a land use plan was put together and let, there could be no judicial review, that's a, that's a bridge too far as well. So we need, we need judicial oversight, but it needs to be smart and not just, you know, uh, just to get one's own way. So I'm Googling your name here, Ed, right? Uh -oh. we're, we're running our little Google thing. And I did not know you were the host of This American Land. I am. Um, that came about in a very interesting way. Um, I did a sage grouse story. I was invited. This is a public television show that is on conservation. It's kind of a conservation news series. We... Um, I, I was asked to do an interview on sage grouse, kind of provide the sportsman's viewpoint. And I did my interview with, um, sorry for the noise there. No worries. I turned down the volume. It shuts me off too, I think. <laughs> um, so I did my interview and about a couple, three weeks later, the executive producer called and 
And he uh, asked me about some landowners and some scientist types that I knew. And I shared the information and they said, well, I, let me change subjects for you. How, how would you like to host the show? <laughs> and really? without hesitation, I said, what, with my face for radio? Are you kidding me? <laughs> so he was looking for someone connected with the conservation world and more contemporary fashion and some credibility on the wildlife side and such. So I, one thing led to another. And yeah, I'm, I've been doing that for uh, five seasons now. It's been great. It's really so fun. in essence, it's been kind of the full circle back to where you, where you, where you started getting into wildlife at the beginning, watching TV, <laughs> seeing, seeing someone on TV talking not, about it. Right. I'm not so, sure I'm a good role model for impressionable youth, but I try. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it, it probably depends on when we catch you, right? Yeah. Um, there you go. But but who knows? Maybe you'll inspire people to maybe there'll be some. 10 year old kid like man I want well to i hope dead. so i um you know and and you know that's one of the night jobs the other one is adjunct professor affiliate faculty member at colorado state i've got an adjunct appointment at texas tech those kind of things keep me excited about you know you know taking some of the experiences that i've had over the several years now you kind of hit that age and experience level it's like i want to share it back you know pay it forward to people and just kind of share those experiences. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been great. And our season nine has just now started to air and we've got a YouTube channel folks can watch and, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a neat show. It does a really nice job of reporting on the conservation front lines, as we like to say. Where can, uh, where can people find it? Is it just on YouTube or? Yeah, if you just go to YouTube, you just type yeah. This American Land YouTube, it'll pop right up, our YouTube channel. If you type This American Land, um, it should pop right up, and you can go to our website. You can actually watch all the video, all the um, episodes from the computer or the YouTube channel, either one. Okay. Uh, we started a podcast, um, and so a little bit deeper dive into specific issues. And you can you can uh, listen to them right off the website or go to your favorite platform for a podcast should be there. Is it the uh, same name, This American Land Podcast? Yeah, that should be it. Yeah. I don't know of any other This American Land. So. <laughs> awesome. Now, so now you that Google search also brought up, Kevin. <laughs> my own name. It didn't bring up anything. It didn't bring up anything too bad. It was. It was a pretty. Worry about. Okay. I wasn't. I wasn't deep diving. You know, I wasn't ending warrants and such. We didn't. I didn't learn anything. Like Rob Parkins was on, and we learned through Google that he could catch a boomerang with his feet. I can't. I'm not that talented. That's for sure. <laughs> Now, now we you we've talked about a lot of gas oil interface with with particular sage grouse. We talked a little bit about the deer, yeah, you know, possibly deer stuff like that. Well, what about um, wind energy and its effect on wildlife? So, I um when I joined Bat Conservation International in 2004, I didn't know anything about you know renewables. Didn't even. It wasn't even on my personal radar screen, other than I knew solar was a good thing to put on your house if you could afford to do it. Um, I started uh, researching everything that was available on that. And, you know, it really started at the Altamont Pass in or in um, California, you know, and it, it, it was an it was a raptor issue. 
unfortunately, and you know, wind is well intended for sure. Uh, they had no idea they had built this particular facility right on top of one of the largest raptor wintering areas in the country, in that part of the country. And so a lot of raptors were being killed. Um, and the, a lot of hypotheses as to why, but, but you know, it was uh, happy hunting grounds in that particular area for the raptors. And a lot of times, you know, the birds are focused on the ground looking for birds or uh, small mammals and the birds fly into and get struck by the blades, that kind of thing. And, and back then, those were really fast moving small turbines and you know those created what would be called a smear effect uh so they really couldn't see through the blades turning so they fly right into them mm -hmm. um it's a little different now when you see the monster turbines you know you can see them pretty well <laughs> but they're still traveling at about 150 plus miles per hour at the tip if you do the physics of a 50 meter blade you know they're out to 40 50 meters now that blade tip's still cruising um, so anyway, bottom line, I started researching on all these different things. It started as a raptor issue. Then they started, searches started finding songbirds. Um, a lot of songbirds do get killed. Um, and then bats kind of popped up in 2003 at a facility in West Virginia and one in Tennessee. And it really hadn't become an issue before. Uh, they found these pretty large numbers and, um, the founder of Bat Conservation International hired me because I had industry experience working with the timber industry and and uh, was wrapping up my doctorate and worked on bats pretty extensively. So that combination landed me that gig. And, and in all of my reading, you know, I never could find much on big game. There was just nothing out there. Um, we built this research cooperative on bats where the industry was thoroughly engaged as were uh, uh, the agencies and um, state wildlife agencies as well, and the NGO world. And that collaborative kind of led to a new collaborative that I believe is still up and running on um, prairie grouse. And some of the very first work done on sage grouse were done through this collaborative that was modeled off the, what we had put together for bats. And it was conducted in Wyoming. And there was more work ongoing in um, Kansas and Nebraska, Kansas mostly on prairie chick, greater prairie chickens. A um, little bit of uh, anecdotal work was emerging from Nebraska. And my summation on prairie grouse is it's mixed. The effects are, are just mixed. Um, one of the standing hypotheses is that these birds evolved in these open prairie landscapes and they don't like trees and big tall structures so they avoid them there's some level of truth to that um but in some cases it doesn't seem to matter um <laughs> to the birds they don't they don't uh, express negative impacts and the sage grouse work on wind has demonstrated that uh there, again there's mixed effects so and it's a little like um imagine um, clear cutting or oil and gas or anything if you put one clear cut in a forest or one oil and gas well out somewhere in the middle of nowhere wyoming probably didn't have that big of an impact on anything uh, except right on the spot but you start building them out and there's a tipping point and a threshold at some point where the animals just won't use the habitat anymore and kind of that industrialization of the landscape and that's been an unknown for us for a long time so the population level impacts on songbirds has been marginal. It's not that it's in, 
it's not that it's unimportant if you happen to be a species that's um, imperiled or, or you know, a conservation concern. Um, it's 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 a big deal if you're sage grouse and and um, you know if you're trying to develop in sage grouse habitat because wind has been all but eliminated from some of the core habitats across the West. Um, but you know, by and large, the population level impacts that we've seen is is largely um, limited to bats. Um, and it definitely, they kill enough bats that in, for some species, we think it's very serious and could lead to a potential future listing. Um, with big game, I think the jury is still out. There's almost no data out there, but I know there's a big concern about solar projects in Oregon uh, and corridors and and um, I think with wind, it's, you know, it's just a matter of time before you see some level of impact in some places. And again, it depends on where they build them. If they build them right in the smack in the middle of calving areas or, or migration corridors, it could be more severe than other types of habitats. So songbirds, marginal, right? Um, well, it's all my- relative. I, I say relative. I, what the way industry, let me qualify that. The wind industry likes to uh, say this a lot that, well, relative to cats and, and buildings, it's true. Buildings kill millions and millions of birds during migration. Mm-hmm. Kitty cats that are loose and running around the neighborhood devastate birds. In mine, mine devastate like, birds. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking, you know, uh, far less from wind turbines. But again, if you're a species that is of conservation concern, it doesn't really matter what happens at buildings and with kitty cats. You see what I'm saying? So, yeah. but by and large, it's marginal compared to other sources of mortality. So, so why the why the bats? Because, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong, um, bats have that echolocation, which makes them be able to turn very quickly and not necessarily need to visualize something, correct? Correct. Um, What we don't know and have yet to really figure out is how their echolocation, um, how, how they use echolocation around the turbines and if it's even effective, if, if they can, if, you know, if they're echolocating off of the, the uh, the turbine nacelle or the turbine uh, um, tower itself, or what's called the nacelle, where all the guts of the of the of the uh, turbine are at the top. Uh, we don't know how they receive the the echolocation, the uh, the return calls off of that. I don't think, and it, it may be that there's uh, um, uh, an impact on them such that uh, they just. They, they can't get that receipt, that returning echo um, in time to avoid being struck by the blades. We've had a number of hypotheses out there for a long time, ever since I started this back in 2004. Uh, we think that um, they look like big trees. I mean, if you look at a wind turbine farm in at dusk and then kind of take a look at a picture or go out into a ponderosa pine forest and look at a big dead snag, they look somewhat similar at dusk, you know, that's very visual. They can see just as good as you and I can. Um, so they may visually see from a distance on a good full moon lit night. They see all these white things sticking up Then they get a little closer and the, the attraction may be, uh, different. It could be that they hear the, 
the the swooshing of the blades that may be an attraction but they may see it as a tree to roost in or a place to secure food or a mate we just don't know a lot of those hypotheses still haven't really been tested out at the end of the day you know they're getting killed and and um uh, the 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 reason may not matter that much <laughs> relative to if it, it'll matter if it, it leads to a better solution now one thing we've tried um is what's called curtailment we uh have advised that you spin the blades or pitch the blades out of the wind this is the way these things work you don't just flip a switch and they start turning they actually spin and and uh turn into the direction of the wind and they're they're structured as such uh they're engineered to catch that wind and then they start spinning so there's a certain wind speed where they actually start producing electrons into the grid the electricity grid and then they they go up to uh probably about 50 equivalent about 55 miles an hour and then they actually start pitching back out because it's not a complete linear relationship otherwise you just spin off and blow up um, they have to think about hurricane force winds. They actually just can't keep producing more and more energy. They actually pitch out so they don't damage the, the grid. Um, and what we found is that during those higher wind periods, somewhere above about six, six or seven meters a second, which is, you know, somewhere in that, you know, 10 to 12 miles an hour range, something to that effect. Um, the bats and there seems to be less mortality. And so our hypothesis there is that insects, I mean, think about a really strong windy evening when you're trying to fly fish. Uh, it's pleasant because you're not getting the hell bit out of you by mosquitoes because sure. the strong wind redistributes the, the insects or they just lay down. Um, and if the bats are flying around in strong winds, which they can do and they, they will do, but if you think about it from an energy perspective, food procurement perspective it doesn't pay you to be out expending energy in strong winds looking for something that isn't there so our hypothesis was that you know during those low wind periods if you pitch those blades out of the wind slow the turbine blades down to next to nothing uh you'd save bats um and my research showed that and our work that our work from europe and all across the country, generally, those studies have demonstrated uh, strong reductions in the fatalities for for bats. So, and ultimately, Kevin, that was a monstrously long-winded answer, but we just don't really know how their echolocation is impacted. Uh, whether they, you know, and it may be too late. Again, those blade tips are going 150 miles an hour. By the time they figure it out, it may be too late. Right, exactly. It, 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 their echolocation may be more based on some, you know, st things that are not moving 150 miles an hour, so yeah. through the air, like like that. Um, so, what species are you concerned about now? Like top of your mind, like what species are you like? If I could really help out one. I'm really concerned about lesser prairie chickens right now. Um, that is a uh, species of bird that all the way, dating all the way back to when we started talking about sage grouse in the mid 1990s was petitioned for listing then. And we had probably, it was over a hundred thousand birds um, estimated then today uh, it's in that 30,000 range. And actually 
when the species was formally listed by the Fish and Wildlife Service, which it was in May of 2014, um, it, uh, it, there were probably about 17,000 estimated to be on the landscape in a five-state region in Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Kansas, and Colorado. Um, since that time, they have not recovered really. Um, the, the program that the five states have, have been working on with the industry hasn't necessarily produced enough habitat to really see a reverse in the trends. Uh, we're probably one good uh, drought and, a, and high oil prices away from that species being really, really in trouble. That's one that's of immediate concern to me. Um, and I don't know if we're going to be able to get that uh, turned around or not. I think um, if you talk to some of the grouse experts, they'll tell you that once you get below 100,000 birds, uh, they can spiral out of control really, really fast. Um, think to the heath hen uh, of the east, that was the eastern uh, subspecies of prairie chickens. Uh, Atwater's prairie chicken, which is on life support and a captive breeding program that has not done anything more than pump a few birds out in the field that can't reproduce. Uh, that species is all but, all but done. Lesser prairie chickens are right behind them. I'll switch to another one I'm concerned about that's not of concern today. I've been saying this for a long time. I think the next sage grouse, I'm still a little concerned about sage grouse. Um, we're not out of the woods yet with those guys either. Luckily, we've got a boatload of habitat that's still left and a lot of birds, but um, but again, that could change quickly too. I've always said that the conservation plans for sage grouse will be tested when we have multiple years of drought in a row and 75 to $100 barrel oil then we're gonna really find out uh, if the plans work. Um, but I'm pretty concerned about the Northern Great Plains. I have been for a long time, uh, and that would be sharp-tailed grouse and greater prairie chickens, which are still in good numbers, but this is shifting from kind of the reactive, oh shit mode, you know, of where we're, we have an impending crisis to something we could fix right now. Um, the Northern Great Plains, and all you have to do is look at North Dakota and the Bakken and the development there, but, you know, wetlands, uh, reduced number of wetlands and draining in that region, crop conversion, uh, all kinds of things that are going on in the, in the Northern Great Plains that can be threatening those two species. And I can tell you that the grassland birds in that region are the fastest declining populations of migratory birds that were, and even resident birds uh, today. So that's an ecosystem that short and mid mixed grass prairies in the Northern Great Plains is something I think we need to be focusing on right now. And that includes the sharp tail. Yep. Yep. And that's an opportunity for proactive measures too. Here's part of the problem though. Um, I mean, our history in wildlife management is replete with examples where we had to wait for the impending crisis. I can tell you that from my experience in the Northwest, uh, very credible biologists were warning the timber industry about northern spotted owls, not in the 90s when it was listed in June of 1990, not in the 80s, 1975, the concern was brought to the attention of the timber industry and continued through the 80s and the bird was listed in 1990. Um, they were warning about marble barrelets. They were warning about a number of things. We talked earlier about uh, the sage grouse. People were warning about them back in the mid 90s. 
So we get these warning signs and then don't do anything about it. And so the unfortunate reality is the longer you wait, the more expensive and more constant it is and the more consternation there is and the less likely you are to be successful. Um, when that looming hammer of the ESA is hovering over your head, but that seems to be what motivates things. So one of our challenges in conservation, as I see it, is shifting. And I'm not saying there haven't been proactive measures. There certainly have where people have taken proactive steps to thwart off listings. There's lots of examples, but we need more of that and we need it at larger scales. So the Northern Great Plains right now, we could be putting a strategy together and there are some you know, strategies out there, but we need strong commitment right now from everybody to get involved with that if we're really going to uh, thwart that off. But the problem, of course, is carrying that into the industry and the CEO level and the lawyers that get involved. And, you know, what's the risk? You got to manage risks and rewards today. And if you've got five endangered species issues and several other permitting issues that you're working with that are problematic today, why would I be thinking about dumping millions of dollars into something that I don't even know it's going to be an issue? So even how can you sell that? So how what? can you sell that? Let's get involved today and start fixing these things before they're big issues. Right. I think before exactly how you sell it. Yeah. And you know, you can put the economics to that too. I think we've got enough case study with these various grouse species and other critters that uh, you, you can definitely make that case, but this is probably not the time to do it now that the, the industry is not doing too well at the moment. But I think in the bigger picture in the long run, that's really what you're looking at an ounce of prevention and a pound of cure hmm. Hmm. or pay me now, pay me later. Well, that's one of my favorites as well. So right. we throw $5 at a $20 problem and pretty soon it's a thousand dollar problem and wonder why it costs so much. <laughs> so hard to fix so that's actually a really good analogy that's yeah. a really good analogy so let's change to something a little bit bigger um and we're both colorado all three of us colorado residents what do you think about that whole introducing of wolves to colorado oh did i just open a can of worms down no. there didn't you <laughs> did i just open a can of worms what's that did I open a can of worms? No one wants oh, to no. get involved. It's, it's a fun subject, of course. Um, I can tell you that litigation frustrates biologists, but so does ballot box biology. Now, that's mm. very different than public input. And, you know, I lived in Oregon when they had a ballot initiative on, I believe it was bear hunting, California. All of that was done through ballot initiative. It was not uh, professional wildlife biologists making a recommendation to their commission to curtail bear hunting or whatever the issue might be, it was ballot initiative. And I, I just don't, I don't support ballot, uh, ballot initiatives like that. And I, I realize it's part of our reality and we, we have to, I just don't support that approach. I think um, Colorado most assuredly can support some wolves. I like wolves. I don't have any problem with them, but they have to be managed. Um, they absolutely have to be managed to a certain level. Um, what that level is, uh, is up to the biologists to, you know, and the science to tell us what we need. And, um, part of the problem there, you know, when I was working in Yellowstone and going to school in Montana, 
a lot of the biologists there felt that the carrying capacity of grizzly bears was only probably a couple hundred bears anyway at that time. And they were probably near it, near, near capacity. That didn't, that wasn't the ecosystem. That was just Yellowstone. Um, so they set their goals based on that information and, you know, look where we are with grizzly bears. Now they're, they're we've far exceeded the, the, uh, population, same thing, or the, uh, the, the uh, recovery goals, same thing with wolves, um, but people want more and more. So the goalposts change and that gets frustrating too. But a lot of this is the difference between what we would call ecological carrying capacity and social carrying capacity. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of habitat to support wolves and grizzlies across a lot broader area than, than there is today. Um, but that comes down to the social acceptance and the social carrying capacity. Uh, some people think that's uh, larger uh, than others do. And of course, we've got, you know, ranching influence and, and concerns there. I, I think there's ample compatibility, but they have to be managed and you have to manage the social expectations with the biological realities um, when when you introduce something like wolves. And they're already here. I mean, it's one of those things where um, just give it a little bit more time and I think an established number of packs in Colorado will be right about where they would normal they would come, uh, they would conclude would be uh, would support kind of a balanced um, mix of, of predators and prey and social tolerance anyway. Um, and it's not just in that northeast part. There, there. I think there have been reports in the circles, and it's just a matter of time. So, and. You know what Oregon did? Oregon, when I was in Oregon, they were developing their wolf plan. They didn't reintroduce. They didn't have a ballot initiative. They didn't do anything. Now they got more wolves than they know what to do with. Um, they they made their way over from Idaho. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and to be clear, that is a ballot box initiative that yep. Colorado Parks and Wildlife, if I or CPW, had said they did not think it was a good idea a few years ago. Yeah. Um, so. My primary issue, and I'm not trying to open up a can of worms, is is one, the ballot box part of it, but the funding on the initiative also yeah. seems to be yeah. falling into the people that are already kind of understaffed and, you know, underfunded. That's you know? absolutely right. It's just one more thing that they have to p- divert already limited resources away from to deal with this, when it's especially when it's mandated. Uh, through ballot box or courts or something to that effect. We made that comment, um, uh, we've made this point, as has the National Refuge Association, on uh, Mr. Bernhardt's recent expansion of hunting opportunity on national wildlife refuges, which we're all for, um, as long as it makes sense and it's biologically compatible and, you know, compatible with other priority uses of refuges, no problem. But refuges are already understaffed and underfunded. So if you're going to open up, uh, you know, places for hunting and fishing, can you do the enforcement, for example? As I understand it, a a full, for all refuges, a complete uh, law enforcement capacity would look like probably 1,100 officers or more. um, And they have about 250 now, as I understand the statistics. So it's the same kind of thing. If you, you know, if you're going to demand something happen, there have to be resources to fund it. 
And that links right back to our sage grouse discussion and all these other species. These are long-term endeavors. They're not one-offs. And that's, you know, you got to plan for the long-term, not the short-term. Because if you take the foot off the gas, when you say, oh, we got enough sage grouse now, we'll be right back in the same boat another five years if you mm -hmm. don't keep those efforts rolling. Exactly. And, you know, I, I've... Um, I, there's obviously plenty of prey for, for wolves here. Um, they'll probably have pretty, pretty dramatic impact on, on some populations, not so much on others. Uh, I'm in the camp that believes that, uh, Yellowstone could have used a good cleansing. <laughs> it, um, and whether they've hit some dynamic equilibrium now, uh, I think, you know, a lot of the researchers think that it's always going to hold about a hundred wolves and there'll probably be five or 6,000 elk. And that's a nice, equilibrium. Uh, when I was going to school up there, there were almost 20,000 elk and the winter range was just horrible. Um, you know, and this whole dynamic of, you know, introducing wolves and, you know, uh, having the ecological effects, top-down kind of effects on the habitat and such, there's a lot of debate around that. Um, some believe the, these cascading effects uh, exist and others don't. Uh, but the bottom line, there were a lot of elk and in uh, Yellowstone. That was all prior to the fire too. So the the burns that happened in 2008 and, and have happened since uh, generally were a good thing. So hmm. for the so they cleaned up the, yeah, so they cleaned up the habitat quite a bit. Yeah, and so it's rejuvenating and such. And, you know, it probably increased the carrying capacity of the bears to some extent, although those fires took out, you know, white bark pine and they, they have as a major food source. It was interesting. I was talking to my wife about this a couple of nights ago. We were watching the bears pawing through the talus slopes and eating the, uh, the moths, um, which has now become a really, really rich source of protein for bears that want to go dig around in talus slopes and bind them. They didn't do that when I was working on bears in 1985 uh, with the bear team. Uh, we had a small sample size of collared bears, but nobody was reporting that. We were reporting things like white bark pine consumption in the fall, which was hugely important. Um, there were certain bears in Yellowstone that were uh, very dependent on those cutthroat trout spawning runs that just aren't hardly existent anymore and that's largely because of lake drought and their effect on on cutthroat population so this, this stuff's very dynamic and bears are omnivores and they're very uh plastic adaptable. food they're very adaptable in their food sources so they, they figured out where those moths were and those moths may have been there for for decades or millennia who knows <laughs> so but but all right. it took was, you know a little more science and study and the bears figuring out where they were and now we now there's a new phenomena we're talking about. Well, awesome. Um, so let me guess. I'm going to guess just that your wild feast isn't going on this year. Correct. Yeah, we had to we had to postpone that. We may do something later. Let's see. I don't. I'm not even sure legally we can host uh, 50 people at the house, and we usually have 50 plus. So, <laughs> um, so our annual beast feast is uh, postponed. Beast feast. I've been doing that. Yeah. Time I learned about it. I mean, look, people have been beast feasting for forever, yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, since the beginning of time. But I, um, my first uh, wild game party that I really went to was in uh, Montana, 
at uh, Montana State, the professors and the grad students had this uh, wild game feast. And I've uh, been doing something like that ever since. I've been hosting. This would have been uh, 27 years in a row that I've hosted my own party. So I got to do something just to keep the streak running, you know. <laughs> You gonna go online? We could all hang out on the. Well, computer. we could do that. We could do. I didn't think about that. Everybody cook something up and we do a virtual. I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, we could do a Zoom thing. You know, so and so eats some fun. turkey. Yeah. yeah. Forty like forty-seven people in a Zoom call. <laughs> people are getting game. creative, man. We all know everybody's getting creative, so that, that might be. Yeah. Fun. I want to think yeah. about that and have a small crowd here and uh, and then do a Zoom, a live Zoom or something. That's a good well, idea. Well, awesome. So where can people find out more about all the projects and stuff you're working on, Ed? So uh, go to trcp.org and you can find out all the good stuff that TRCP is working on. Um, there's also links to our partner websites. Um, TRCP is a partner organization. Uh, we have uh, 60 partners now that we formally work with and some capacity. And, you know, the idea there of our founder, Jim Range, was to bring all the various voices together and have a unified voice. And, you know, all those partners don't always have the same um, saying they got their own mandates and approaches and such, but there's a lot of common ground that we can find. And I think that's the idea is to, is to, uh, you know, have unification around these conservation issues like farm bill, like the highway bill for with wildlife crossings and um, marine fisheries issues, public lands, all those things unify folks and we can usually find common ground. So uh, all those issues are on our, on our website. Um, yeah, that's uh, where you can find us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you for taking the time to chit chat with us today. Oh, I really, really enjoyed it. I, um, I, I, I wanted to ask you guys questions about, uh, Go the outdoor ahead. I'll, I'll Go tell ahead. you, one thing. well, I'll tell you one thing I really appreciate, appreciate about you guys and, and a lot of the outdoor industry players is we need the, the businesses to engage. Uh, I tell you, uh, and I'll just very quick little story. I think, you know, when, when I was working at Warehouser, we figured it out really quickly that when um, a customer calls and says, what are you doing about this? And in this case, it was the Home Depot wondering what Warehouser was doing about green certified wood. Um, that's when the CEOs get real fired up real fast and they want to make sure we're doing something to satisfy customers. My point here is that businesses, and Kevin, you've signed on to many of our letters and yep. and you contribute and donate as, as lots of folks do. It's really, really important. And I really appreciate you doing it. Um, because it's we all we all have skin in this game, and uh, that's something I've seen develop and manifest over my career. Is that uh, the more businesses are engaged, uh, this it just brings a, another level of voices, particularly the voices of the politicians here. When you start talking about jobs and and you know the economy and those kinds of metrics, so appreciate what you guys do. Well, thank you, thank you. Great, and hopefully cool. we'll. Be at Beast Feast and in the field uh, hunting something down the road. Sounds great. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks, Kevin. Hey, everyone. Real quick before you go, I just wanted to say thanks for listening. And if you've been enjoying what you're hearing, please leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you.